So we're concluding our series on the last five books of uh, the book of Psalm, and, or the last five chapters, rather, of the book of Psalms, and we're, we're coming to Psalm 150. So why do we need to hear from Psalm 150 this morning? What is in this text that can help us? And so as I was thinking through my own uh, life and my own tendencies, I thought of a few that might relate with you as well. Um, first, I can tend to trivialize God to make him ordinary or compartmentalize him. And so maybe you can relate with that. Um, how do we do this? So we can, we can almost start to worship caricatures of God instead of the God who he really is. We bring him down from his elevated holiness and we make him into something he's, he's not. We, we take aspects of God and begin to worship him. So one example of this might be we view God as a coach that in the game of life, maybe I feel like I'm losing at the moment, so I run to the sideline, I need a little pep talk, and then I'm back at it on my own. I need to finish. I need to finish well. We view him as a coach. Or maybe we view him as a medic that I don't think much about him until I'm not feeling well. Or maybe a family member or a friend isn't feeling well, and then I need to go to him because he is the medic. Maybe we view him as a security guard that when, I'm, when I feel threatened or when I feel fearful, I turn to him, that he is the one who can protect. He's the one who can help me in this moment. Or maybe it's a good luck charm that as long as I keep him close enough, that if he's within arm's reach, if he's around, things will go better for me. And I know in the U.S. it's common for a lot of athletes to put Bible verses on their uniform or shoes. Some of that's probably good motives and, and, and a good reason, but some of it is motivated by the fact that they think they will perform better if they're representing a Bible verse on their uniform. It's a good luck charm. Or maybe as a generous grandparent, viewing God that he is this grandparent. Now, I know my parents, when they became grandparents, uh, they were very clear that we, we are not parents anymore, that when your children come to our house, we will feed them candy, they will stay up late, and we will not discipline them. That is, that is the role of a grandparent. It's a privilege. We, we parented. We're done with that phase. And so we can view God through that lens that when I need something, I'll ask him. He'll give it to me. Because he's a, or if I mess up, he'll just let it slide like a generous grandparent. So maybe what are some signs that we fall into these things? Some of the warning signs in our own life. Um, maybe we have very little or no personal worship throughout our week. That's a warning sign that I'm probably compartmentalizing God. I'm trivializing him. I'm bringing him down, making him ordinary. Maybe there's little or no Bible reading in my life. Or maybe little or no prayer, just talking to God throughout the day. Another response that we can have besides that is just to ignore God completely, altogether. I think that's, by and large, probably the response of our culture, is to ignore him. If there's a God, so what? It doesn't have any weight on my life currently. Um, and I would say that as we look at Psalm 150, and the response that is elicited in the, the author here, it's bubbling over, it's overflowing with joy, it's, it's resulting in loud music and dancing. Who is this God? So I would ask if if maybe you're in the camp of just ignoring God, maybe you don't know who he is, as the Bible describes. Maybe it's worth getting to know so that we can experience him the same way the psalmist is describing here in Psalm 150. So let's get into the text. <clears throat> let's get a little context of where we're going here. Um, the book of Psalms, as you may be familiar, is divided into five different books. And that could be um, just representing the first five books of the Bible. Um, and so each of those books, the five books of the Psalms, ends uh, with a doxology, with a little word of praise to the Lord. So if you look at how the books are divided, book one goes through chapter 41, 
and verse 13 is the doxology. And then book two goes through chapter 72, and verses 18 and 19 are the doxology. Same thing with book three, goes to verse, or chapter 89, book four to 106, verse 48. Well, book five concludes not with just a verse, but with an entire chapter. So what we had read to us this morning, that is the doxology of the entire Psalter, that we're to see Psalm 150 as the culmination of the entire book. And so you see how it progresses, that it's, it's, you see every human emotion throughout the entire book. You see the highs and the lows. You see um, excitement and praise. You see lamenting and hurt and grief. But as you come to the end, it begins this crescendo of praise, culminating in thanksgiving and gratitude and worship to God until you come to Psalm 150, which is the pinnacle of the Psalms. It is pure praise. Charles Spurgeon, the great English pastor and preacher, says this about Psalm 150. He says, We have now reached the last summit of the mountain chain of Psalms. It rises high into the clear azure, and its brow is bathed in the sunlight of the eternal world of worship. It is a rapture. The, pro, the poet prophet is full of inspiration and enthusiasm. He slays not to argue, to teach, to explain, but cries with burning words, praise him, praise him, praise ye the Lord. The psalm is pretty simple. It consists of six verses, 72 words. 13 of those words are praise. I think there's a central theme that is repeated and repeated. It's not complex. The main uh, goal of this psalm is not to uh, teach us something or instruct us alone, but it's to just bubble up in praise. It's to elicit praise in our hearts as we praise him for who he is. So four things we're going to look at here as we break down the text. Uh, we're going to look at the where of praise, the why of praise, the when of praise, and then finally the who of praise. So let's start in verse 1. This is the where do we praise. Psalm 150 verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Two things here, two, two locations, the sanctuary and in his mighty heavens. So in his sanctuary, that would have been the temple. So if you put yourself in the context of the people of Israel, the temple was central to their culture, central to their way of life, to their worship of God. It's where they offered the sacrifices, um, originating with a tent of meeting, but then eventually getting to the temple. And so it was the place where the people gathered. It's where they worshiped the Lord. They came as a congregation to praise him. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 gives us some instruction on how we should view meeting together as a church, even as we're meeting together this morning. It says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there's a, there's a tendency listed here in this text, and the tendency is to stop meeting together, to neglect meeting together, to gathering. And he's saying, do not neglect that, but encourage one another all the more as you say, see the day drawing near. There's something, God has created us for community, and he's created us to worship him in community, and it's necessary. Now, I grew up camping with our family. We'd go uh, either to the mountains, 
um, or someplace out just in the wilderness to get away. And the thing that I loved about that as a young boy was making the campfire. And we've taken our family as well, and William, that is his highlight. When you get to you stack the wood, you light it on fire, it produces heat, you cook food over it, and there's an element of danger there, I think, that draws little boys in. And, um, but as you're tending the fire throughout the night, what are you doing? You're watching, and if occasionally a log will roll off, kind of off to the side. And what, hap- what will happen inevitably to that log? It will go out it, because it's been removed from the heat source. So that is what this verse is warning us against, that if we remove ourselves from the heat source, from the congregation, if we neglect meeting together, there is a danger there, that we need one another to continue to urge and push one another towards the Lord. So that's the first location, in the temple, corporately in the congregation, on Sundays when we gather on the Lord's Day. But it's not limited to that. It's, it's also in the heavens. It's much more. It is to spill over into our weeks, that wherever we go, under the heavens, we're to be worshiping and praising Him. So it's everywhere else. So I guess a good question is, how do you view Sunday morning gatherings? How do you view this time together? Do you view it as essential to your spiritual health and growth, like this psalmist is getting at here, that Hebrews points to? I think uh, an application that we can begin to think about in light of lockdown coming out of being restricted to only meeting online, is just asking the question, if, if we're continuing to stay away from meeting in person, why is that? And I think there are good reasons. There are valid reasons for that still. People need to quarantine, and more people are in a different risk category. But we also need to be careful that we're not neglecting and just taking the easy route, because it's easier just to wake up and turn on the computer and to log in. But no, look at the benefit. There's a real benefit from coming together in meeting in the congregation, meeting in, the, in his sanctuary together. We experience something in this that we can't experience on our own throughout the week. That's point one, the where. Corporately and individually everywhere else. Point two, why do we praise? Psalm 150 verse 2 says, Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. So two reasons why we should praise him for his mighty deeds. That's what he's done. And then we're also to praise him for his excellence, <clears throat> his excellent greatness. That's, that's who he is. That's his character or his attributes. So let's start with what he has done for his mighty deeds. If you look back to the, the opening psalm that we kicked the series off with, Psalm 146, there's a list in, in verses 6 through 8 of, of the, the author just recounting God's works of what he's done. He's created. He's a faithful God. He, um, it, it, the idea there, and it's common throughout the Psalms, is to think back to what God has done and then use that as a springboard to praise him. And so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to remember what he has done. Think about the beginning. He is the creator. He is the one who actually created everything out of nothing. The Bible says that it is he who gives life and death, oh, sorry, life to the dead and mankind, uh, life and breath and everything. God is the giver of life, and we should praise him for what he's done. In creation, he took nothing and made it into something. Not only that, if you put yourself in the shoes of the author here, one of the main events that would have been on the tip of his mind would have been the Exodus event. So the nation of Israel was in captivity in the land of Egypt, and they'd been there for hundreds of years. They were slaves, physical slavery, 
And what does God do? He raises up a man, Moses. He sends them. And through a series of ten different plagues, he sends on the nation of Egypt. He eventually delivers. He brings salvation for his people. He brings them out. They cross through the Red Sea on dry ground. Now what's interesting about those ten plagues is that they correspond to the gods that the Egyptians would have worshipped. So as the Egyptians are calling out to these different gods, God is showing them, Yahweh, the true God, is showing them that they cannot hold up. That In fact, they are false gods. And so if you, you could look at any of them, but as you look at the one that turns the Nile River into blood, they worship the God of the Nile. That was their life source. Or the one where God blacked out the sun, blackness 24-7. They worshiped the God of the sun. God is dismantling their little gods right before them. And then lastly, when Pharaoh's firstborn son is killed, Pharaoh was viewed as God in their culture. He was untouchable. He was a God. And here he is, cannot even defend his own family. And so we see what God has done is that he removes uh, these false gods and he brings an act of salvation. He brings them out of the land of slavery to uh, the promised land. And that's not where it ends, though. Jesus steps on the scene. God comes down to earth. He comes to us. And what does he do? He leads a new exodus. Not a salvation from a physical slavery, but a salvation from spiritual slavery, a slavery to sin. The Bible says that we are dead in our transgressions and sins, that we cannot call out to God, we cannot respond to God, we cannot get to God on our own. We are unable incapable. We're, we're spiritually dead. But what Jesus did was he came and he gave of himself. We have a God who came and sacrificed himself for you, for me. That he died on the cross and then he resurrected to new life, defeating sin and death on our behalf. And so we have a God who has led the new exodus for us and brought us salvation and brought us hope. So I think a good question is just like the Egypt, the Egyptians worshipped um, gods in their life, what are the gods that we can worship in our own lives. Maybe it's the God of career or the God of success or the God of your bank account or the God of the approval of a a group of people in your life that you're seeking their approval. And the question is, have those gods ever sacrificed for you? Has your career, has your bank account, have those, those people that you're desperately trying to earn their approval, have they ever sacrificed for you? Have they given themselves for you? Not like this. Not like Jesus has, who gives fully of himself to invite you into a relationship with him. We have a God who's worthy of praise because of what he's done. And then, secondly, under that same point, because of who he is, his attributes, because of his character, his greatness. I'm just going to read one verse. It's from the book of Exodus as as well. Uh, it's chapter 34, verses 6 through, six through 7, and it says this. It's, it's God telling Moses who he is. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What jumps out of that passage? Look at all the attributes of God that are so worthy of praise. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. Steadfast love. Forgiving. He does extend 
forgiveness and the invitation of mercy and grace to everyone, but yet he's just. He does not let, he does not clear the guilty. He is worthy of praise because of, because of who he is. So not only do we have the Bible, to, I mean, primarily tells us who God is and what he's done. <laughs> if you just read the Old Testament, that's its purpose. It tells us who he is and what he's done, and we should use that to praise. So we can remember the Exodus, and that can stir us to praise. We can remember Christ's coming, and that should definitely stir us to praise. But also in your own life, there's events and things God has done. You can see his faithfulness in your own life. What has he done for you that you can remember? And we have several of these milestones in our own life that we look back to from time to time when um, things are hard or difficult, and we remember, look what God did then. Remember that? He's going to do it again. He, he's faithful. And so I'll share one of those with you. Mandy and I, we had been married about five years at the time, and we wanted to start a family. So we got pregnant, and we had a miscarriage right away with our first, uh, with our first pregnancy. And it was devastating for us. I remember that was kind of the first hard thing we had experienced, like genuinely hard. And um, as we wrestled through that season, um, it, it was kind of like it just, things just kept piling on top. <laughs> and so we had a, a lot of medical bills. We had thousands of dollars as a result of that that we needed to pay off. Um, so there's a financial burden there. And then we worked with a ministry where we raised our own support and we needed to raise more money. That was just the reality of the nature of the, the season we were in. And so we were sitting down at dinner one night and, uh, at our table and we hear this crash outside on the street and we're like, that was odd, but we kind of go back to eating, and then it's followed by this knock on our door, and it was our neighbor, and he says, uh, I just hit your car, and I was like, no, you didn't hit my car. I didn't park on the street. I parked in our driveway. I'm off the road. I don't, I don't think you did, and he's like, no, my parking brake failed. We lived on the steep hill. His house was up the hill a little ways. Ours was down the hill. It rolls down the hill and into our driveway and totals our car, um, so it's just one thing after another, and so we we're just like, what's next, you know? Well, we get a call from our, one of our supporting churches, and they said, hey, what's going on? How can we be praying for you? Is there any, any needs right now? And they'd done that from time to time, and we're like, eh, things are pretty good. You know, just keep praying. And we're like, oh, here, we'll let you know. Here, here's what's going on. Here's everything. And uh, they brought it before their missions board, and they, and they prayed through it, and they got back with us a day or two later, and they said, here's what we want to do. We're going to cover your thousands of dollars in medical bills. We're going to increase our monthly support. We have a member of our missions board who's going to donate his car to you, it's only six years old, and it's a large vehicle. It'll be great for what you're doing with students to haul them around. And, um, yeah, we're praying for you. We're, we're so glad that it, God has you where you're at. It was the most encouraging phone call we've ever had in our life, and we were left in tears afterwards. Look what God has done. So what are the moments in your life? There's big and small, right? That was a big one for us that we go back to often because it was just like boom, 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 provided one phone call. Um, but what are those events in your life? Remember them. Give thanks to them and let them be a springboard of praise to the Lord. That brings us to the third point, which is when. When do we praise him? And at first glance of reading these verses, I think you can, you can make a case for this is how we should praise him as well, right? So it starts listing all the instruments. I'll read it. It says, praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud crashing cymbals. God has given us instruments to enhance our worship. He's given us the ability to create them, to make them, and then the skill to be able to play them. And we're definitely to use that in worship to enhance our worship. If you look at the different types of instruments used, there's, um, there's wind instruments, there's trumpets, there's pipe. 
you can see that there's uh, percussion, so there's tambourine and cymbals, and then you see that there's stringed instruments, so it's all-encompassing. He's saying, bring all the instruments and praise me with them, and do it wholeheartedly as you see the tambourine and the dance. So there is some instruction on, on how to praise, but if we, we look a little more deeply at what the instruments were and what they would have symbolized and the connections the people of Israel would have drawn to those specific instruments, I think we can make a case for when we should praise him. So these instruments were used at, at specific festivals, at um, different celebrations, at different times in their week, in their month, and in their year. And so the trumpet would have been a, a sound that they heard to gather the people for worship when the sacrifices were going to start. And you can, you can do a, a study throughout tracing these instruments, and it's fascinating. We're not going to go in depth on that this morning, but all of these instruments were used at, at celebrations, at weddings, at funerals even. So what would that be communicating? You're to praise God all the time, in every situation of life, in all circumstances of life. The when, always. Praise Him, always. Every circumstance. 1 Corinthians 10.31 speaks to this. It says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do it all to the glory of God. When? Always. God does not compartmentalize our lives. We compartmentalize Him in our lives at times, but He does not compartmentalize our lives into what is considered spiritual and what is considered unspiritual. It's all done to His glory. So whether that's brushing your teeth and eating your breakfast in the morning, or whether that's finishing that project for work, or finishing that paper for maybe your schooling, or whether it's reading your Bible or sharing your faith, all of that is to be done to the glory of God. It's all done in praise. So the question is, how can I tweak and adjust my week so that it isn't just a Sunday, but it's spilling over into my week? And then lastly, who is to, who is to praise? And that's verse 6. It says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Take a deep breath. Inhale. Exhale. You, me, we, we are to praise the Lord. Everyone, everything that has breath is to praise the Lord. What I like about, about this psalm is that it is the concluding psalm in the entire Psalter, and it ends in praise. That's the ending point. So you see all throughout the Psalms, you see the hardship, you see the struggle, you see the rejoicing, you see the ups and downs, but how does it end? It ends in praise. We can take courage from that. We can be encouraged this morning knowing that some of us are going through some really hard things right now. And the first response probably isn't praise, but we know that it will all end in praise one day. That is the hope we have with a resurrected king. Let's look we get a glimpse of this. We get a glimpse of where all humanity is headed, what God's plan is, there, that we will all be gathered before him in worship, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and it will be exalting him in praise. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. We get a glimpse of this. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom 
and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What a powerful scene. If we were to meditate on that scene, it should give us goosebumps. Every tribe, tongue, and nation represented worshiping the Lord, not not out of drudgery, not out of duty, not moping around, filled with joy and praise for all eternity. That's where we're headed. As we know the end and what is ahead, that can encourage us in our circumstances today because we know how it ends, but also should motivate us to want to invite others into this. Who are the people in your workplace, in, in your neighborhood, that you could invite over for a meal into your house and introduce them to this God who is worthy of praise? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who is, is worthy of praise and it isn't simply a command that we're to carry out um, but God, it is a response of, of joy for what you've done for us, that you would step down from your eternal perfection, you would enter into the filth of our lives, that you would die for us, that you would res- be resurrected and give us new hope and new life. Attention on that this morning, that we would think this week ahead, that we would live lives of mission, inviting others to worship this same great God. It's in Christ's name. Amen.